This is episode 141 of the Auto What Podcast. I'm Amon Bashir. With me is Keegan On and producer Rob's kicking around here somewhere. And our guest today is Ewan Reed. Ewan is the president and CEO of Mission Control Space Services. He is a actor sometimes, and uh, he has a very well-accomplished family. So we want to talk about all of this. Uh, but first of all, how are you doing, Ewan? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. So Ewan, in front of us, we have some beer, or I guess I should hand you a glass. Certainly. And uh, the way we start the show is we talk a little bit about the beer we're drinking. So first of all, Keegan, what are we drinking? Today we are drinking Loose Lips Lager from Long Slice Brewing out of Toronto. Um, for this beer, uh, they write, Ahoy there, Loose Lips Lager is a supremely easy drinking brew. It floods your taste buds with a smooth, toasty malt flavor, leaving an intriguing, noble hop character in its wake. Drinking one of these won't leave you shipwrecked. Um, <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, it, it's funny that it mentioned hop because I, I don't, I don't, I'm not picking up a whole lot of hop, but it, I think it's a really smooth lager. Uh, and I think I've grown to know or to learn that uh, I really like lagers over IPAs. I think that's my new thing. I think I've just kind of become a bit tired of IPAs. But anyway, right now, this is a beer I'd buy again. This is a beer that's sort of smooth, easy drinking, and something that's sessionable. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's it. What do you think, uh, Ewan? Well, I thought that Loose Lips did sink ships, so <laughs> yeah. I, I don't see why there's no shipwreck at the end. But I, I, I guess. think it's, uh, it's, it's not bad. I, I, I wouldn't mind a little more hop in here, but it's yeah, got some it flavor. Um, it does, yeah. And it's a nice color. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I didn't pay for it, so that's not bad. Very nice. That was nice. Um, you guys will win long slice beer for life if you can guess one of the two strands of hops in this beer. I, I don't even, I, I, I couldn't guess. I have no idea. Uh, you, everyone can guess. Uh, bunny? Bunny hops is close. Okay, let's see who's closer. Come on. What's your guess? Uh, dry. The only real one I know is Cascades. <laughs> I have no I, idea. I don't know, I don't, oh, I don't know my hops. hops. Uh, this has Millennium hops as well as Czech Saz hops. Oh, so close. And oh, you're saying bunny like hops. Oh, man. That wow. Was the, that was the. <laughs> went <laughs> over my head. I think, okay, Ewan wins. Okay. First game. Fine. Sorry, what did you win? Uh, oh, just he won that uh, between you two. But no, <laughs> no long slice. I'm pretty sure I heard beer for life yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard so. that too. <laughs> All right, long slice, you're on the hook if you're listening. And we know you're listening because we bought two cans of your beer. And you should know that. <laughs> Okay, well, with that, we'll drink that throughout the episode. Uh, but now I, I want to touch. So before we get on the things that I, I mentioned that you've done or some of your, 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 your the bigger things that you have going on with you right now, I want to rewind to sort of how things started for you. So first of all, where are you from? Uh, I was born at the Riverside Hospital here in Ottawa, actually. Oh, wow. Um, Funny, nobody mentions the hospital, but you did, and I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, I was on a train uh, home from a conference uh, uh, from Kingston uh, yesterday, and um, that train, from the window from my seat, I could see both the high school that I went to uh, and the hospital I was born. I noticed as I was looking out the window, so I, I thought that was uh, interesting. That's why I remembered it just now. Oh, yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, but yeah, I was raised in the Ottawa Valley, just outside of town, um, okay. out near the village of Ashton, but uh, in, right. in the country, uh, just yes, surrounded sure. by farms, uh, what are now... Um, developments unfortunately right. surrounded by or also living on uh living on a hobby farm so okay. 
uh, it wasn't my parents' primary occupation, but we did have some animals uh, yep. growing up. Mm-hmm. So some sheep and ducks and chickens and turkeys and dogs right, and eh? cats and things like that. Yep. That's cool. That's yeah. interesting. Uh, and and how, how long did you, did you spend sort of most of your sort of childhood and sort of yeah, growing up there? Yeah, uh, for the most part, I, I lived with my family for a couple of years in, in England uh, outside Oxford when we were when I was quite young. My dad was finishing up a PhD and we were over there. Wow. Um, but otherwise, for the most part, a little bit of time in Canada and then and then out there in the, in the country. Interesting. Um, yeah. What is life like on a hobby farm? Like where you did you have a lot of chores like you would on a, a functional farm? Yeah. I mean, I, I had chores uh, yeah. for sure. Uh, you know, I think they were not nearly as arduous as what they might have been if we were a real, you know, legitimate functioning dairy farm or something mm-hmm. and I had right. to get up and to milk every morning. But there right. was tasks that I had to do, you know, basically to, to get my allowance that week that sure. were more associated with outside stuff, whereas someone in, in a suburb might have had to do different things to get their right. allowance. Yeah. 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 Makes cool. sense. Interesting. So, uh, so, so what happened at some point in time, you, you moved out, I imagine. And then you went to, is that when you went to King, you went to Kingston, is that right? Yeah. I went to Queens uh, okay. from undergrad. So that was, um, when I moved out, although I, I will, uh, readily admit that, uh, like many people, it seems, uh, in this day and age, I did move back home briefly and, and kind of crash at my parents, uh, sure. when I was, you know, unemployed and, and, uh, aimless and, and that kind of thing for sure. about a year, year and a bit. So, um, that was a cool experience, but otherwise, uh, no, I haven't been back. <laughs> okay. Uh, that makes sense. How, how many were you, by the way? Uh, three siblings, three, yeah. you and a brother and a sister. That's right. Yeah. Great. So graduating from, from Queens, uh, and, and sort of, is, is that when you jumped into your career or did you do further education? Um, I did. Uh, it's a, I had a bit of a, a long history of my undergrad. I, I was, I was sick for a little while. Um, yeah. had a bunch of surgery during my undergrad and, uh, missed some time. And, uh, and then actually right before I graduated, I, I kind of quit and didn't graduate. Interesting. Um, hitchhiked to Vancouver. Okay. Uh, lived out there for a little while. Eventually came back, uh, moved in with my parents. And then eventually uh, uh, a friend of mine, Pascal, kind of was like, you know, you, you and you should maybe go back and finish school and maybe get a job. And I said, oh, yeah, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, and so I did. I went back and then and then I finished at Queens and actually stayed on and did a second degree um, and then started my career. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get to your career, you hitchhiked to Vancouver. Wow. Yeah, actually, what's I think most impressive is we I managed to do it in four and a half days, which is which is about how long it takes to drive Absolutely. if you're going kind of all out. Yeah. Um, and usually when you're hitchhiking, as you know, you know, your 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 percentage of time staying on the road is just as high as your percent of the time in a car. So you don't usually cover as much ground. But um, I took two days to get to just outside Sault Ste. Marie. Yes. And then I was picked up by a big rig um okay and is this a pg kind of podcast or That's what fine. can I, no. do, do your thing okay so the the, the what's you gonna know, happen in the story oh my god <laughs> well it's not that bad but yeah i'm trying to think what i want to say so anyway <laughs> let's just say that let's just say that big rigs don't usually pick people up because they're not supposed to they're not insured okay, it's, sure. it's a big deal they're not really allowed to and yeah Maybe you kind of have the stereotype that back in the day they used to, and I think they did. But really nowadays, from what I learned, they, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but this uh, fellow did stop to pick me up, and you know I kind of ran over to the car and um, you know reached up. It's you know high, high above your head. You kind of put your hand up and open the door and kind of look up in the cab. And he leaned over, and before saying anything else, he said, "Do you have any weed?" And <laughs> and I said, uh, "Oh yeah, actually I do have." And he's like, oh, "Okay, you got any Coke? Any Bennies?" I said, "Oh uh, no, sorry." And he's like, "Oh um, well, get in." 
So, <laughs> so I got in and, and then the next question he asked me, this is still before hello or anything. Yeah. What my name is just the next question is where are you heading? I said, well, I'm heading to Vancouver, but you know, I take as far as, you know, you can take me. He's like, I'm going to Vancouver. Oh, wow. that was it. And so then, you know, he is my buddy and we went all the way out to uh, Vancouver wow. together. Unbelievable. So he took you from Sault Ste. Marie to Vancouver in two days. Yes. It's a lot he, of driving. Um, he was doctoring his books. This was uh, probably before there were certain sensors and, and certain regulations. He did have a book that he had to log where he was going. Right. And they radioed back and forth together and f- would figure out where the checkpoints were, which were active, and would backfill his book to make sure that if he did get stopped, it looked like he was fine. So at any given moment, he was completely <laughs> driving against the rules. Um, I'm not sure how much more I should say, but he... You know, it makes you wonder, I guess, who's out there on the road, because this this individual was extremely excited to get his route was uh, Mississauga, Vancouver, L.A., Mississauga in the triangle. Oh, OK. Yeah. And he's taking empty flower pots to Vancouver. And I don't know he's taking Vancouver to L.A. And I don't know he's taking from L.A. to Toronto. But mm-hmm. he was excited to get to the L.A. part because his last leg, L.A. to Toronto, was going to be great because he had a friend in L.A. that could hook him up with this great speed. So he was really excited about the drive home. I guess that would help. Yeah, and totally I was thinking, well, I'm really. glad I'm getting out in Vancouver. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, like, how how long at a time would you have to be on the road? So he picked me up at about, say, just after I'd had a lunch at a diner outside the Sioux. And um, after that, I went out on the road and waited a while and he came pick me up. So early afternoon. And I was sitting there with him all day and we were driving and driving and driving. And that drive over Lake Superior uh, towards Thunder Bay and beyond is a long drive. Yeah. Um, so we were doing that. And um, eventually I was getting tired and he had no, no, showed no sign, just slowing down. And there's, as you may know, in the back behind the two seats, there's a kind of a little room. And then there's two bunks in most of the big rigs. So it's like okay. a bunk bed. So... He was sleeping on the bottom bunk and he has a guitar in there and then the bunk the top was empty. It's just fine. So I, you know, he, he'd offered it to me during the trip. And so at some point, I don't know what time, you know, getting close to midnight, um, somewhere, you know, Kenora, I don't know where I, I basically said, okay, well, I'm going to go back to sleep. So I went up there, climbed the top bunk and, and went to sleep okay. and, uh, woke up and it was say, you know, six, seven AM and we were well west of Winnipeg. And he had he had stopped in Winnipeg, slept for maybe two hours himself. I didn't even know. And then he got up and started and kept driving again. And right. so you know, that was his break that I didn't even know about. Yeah, and wow. we went that whole day and the next time we stopped for anything more than a bathroom break or a quick bite was in Golden, BC. Oh, Lord. And we stopped a little bit longer in Golden um, because he had, we stopped at a pub and uh, he had a big, uh, he enjoyed himself. Yes. And, sure. uh, and uh, I helped him find his way back to the truck. And yeah. then uh, again, though, like he was up and at it and driving again by 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, um, wow. and then blasted through and we were, and then from Golden to BC it was that, you know, then we were in Vancouver that day, later on that day. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I imagine that really worked out for you in terms of time. Yeah. But uh, was that not terrifying at any point? You know, <laughs> I think he was a, a good driver. I think like, you know, uh, um, th- there's elements of it that sound like it could be scary. I, I think he was in control. Um, okay. I think, you know, I, I obviously those protocols and regulations in place for a reason and, yes. and he might have been more tired than he should have been, but I didn't ever notice that he was egregiously tired and yeah. okay. I, I think he did a fine job and he was an innocent character and I was happy to learn a little bit about his life and it gave me an opportunity to give a bit of, a bit of perspective about his life. You know, yeah. He had a very different upbringing than I had and um, was was raised in an orphanage and he had a brother who was a drug dealer and he's kind of half raised by that, that brother and half through different foster parents or an orphanage and... Um, is from the indigenous population and was marginalized his whole life. And I found it really interesting that in the truck, we were kind of equals or even maybe 
he was higher on, higher than me on some kind of hierarchy in the sense that this was his truck and he was yeah. driving it and he yeah. was in charge. We would get out of the truck, we would go into the Husky or some you know gas station, get a, a meal or something. And I noticed this fairly on. We'd walk in and if I said, and if I said, oh, well, do you want to sit here? And he, he wouldn't answer. He couldn't answer. He had to defer to me. It was up to me where we sat wow. because as soon as we were out of the truck, I was the person that was hmm. somehow higher than him and, and the way he saw it because he'd always been put down in his life to where he was below whoever he felt that I was. And right. it, it, I'm not sure if I'm explaining this perfectly, but the, this was something that, that kind of opened my eyes and made me realize that it's, you know, that the life he'd had and, been, and lived had made him into a different person than, than the life I'd had and I'd lived and had made me. Yeah, I guess yeah. it would. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a hell of a story. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Uh, so, okay. So, you know, obviously having hitchhiked to, to, uh, Vancouver, Vancouver coming back, thank you. <laughs> coming back to, uh, to Ottawa and then eventually finishing school and, and, yep. and, and, you know, starting your career. Uh, so uh, how did you start? Where, 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 where did you go? And, and I, I'm, I'm going to almost Tarantino this in saying that you <laughs> like the end, the end game before what's what you have going on right now is that you eventually did some work for NASA. And, and I think a lot, I mean, I, I found that fascinating when I first met you and, and that's obviously a big accomplishment, but it's not, it's not like a snap of your finger. So just curious, what was your path there? And we'll talk about the rest. So when I was a student of engineering at Queens, I had a chance to work, um, a summer job at a, a space company, a private space company here in, in Canada, uh, yeah. here in Ottawa called Neptech Design Group. And when I graduated, I actually was hoping I could go back and work with them. Yeah. And they just, at the exact moment when I graduated, they didn't have room for me and they were on a bit of a downturn and they couldn't, they couldn't take me. And so I was looking for other jobs. I was trying to get a job in finance. I'd flown out to London for a couple interviews and I was pretty close to getting a job in, you know, in, in, in banking and, and, and this was actually in 2008 and, and they were going to hire me to do collateralized debt obligation structuring and things like this. And basically, sounds like fun, you know, it's <laughs> fun, but, but this was exactly what caused the financial crisis. Right. And I yes. would have been the first person out of a job two months later. Yeah, you would have been. But as it was, I didn't quite get the offer. They were, you know, waiting, things were happening and I felt optimistic. And then suddenly I get this call from Neptech. Hey, we'd, we'd love to have you back. We need you right now. And, and, you know, can you come back? So I said, sure. And I jumped at the chance of what I had wanted to do anyway. Yep. And so I went back and when I went back, uh, they had brought me in specifically to work on a program that they had with NASA, uh, whereby they were a NASA prime contractor. And they were contracted to provide a laser camera system that was used to inspect the space shuttle's thermal tile uh, while the shuttle was in orbit. And okay. so this had come about because the space shuttle Columbia had sustained damage during liftoff. Pieces of foam from the external tank, the big yellow um, fuel tank that you see uh, under, behind the shuttle, uh, had, had fallen off during liftoff and, and caused some damage to the wing. And at the time they knew about the damage, they didn't know how bad it was. They ended up thinking it wasn't that bad. And the space shuttle tried to re-enter and ended up burning up on re-entry right. and, and lost all the crew, unfortunately. So after that, there was an investigation. And one of the outcomes from that was that they mandated that there be a sensor on board that could inspect damage to ascertain how bad it was. Okay. And at the time, Neptech had been developing um, a camera that could take three-dimensional images for use on another NASA program. And they were essentially ready to go with, with, with a sensor that could do this. So they called NASA and said, hey, we can do that. And, and as a result, they got a prime contract to directly to NASA to do this because they were the only company in the world that could do it. Right. And so I was brought in to work as an operations engineer, which meant that I would go down to mission control in Houston and support the missions in real time. So while the astronauts were up there using the system to inspect damage sites, I would be down there monitoring the health of the system, making sure they were doing their job appropriately and yeah. you know supporting the mission um, you know, in real time. Yeah. Um, also got an opportunity to go down to Kennedy Space Center where the shuttle launches and lands and, and install the system and do tests on it um, on the launch pad and, 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 you know, take it off after missions and, and test it out and things like that. So Interesting. really 
lucky and really, you know, what an amazing, cool experience to have right out of, out of school, basically. Well, and that's um, the thing. A lot of people yeah. have to work up to that after years and years and years. Absolutely, and, and yeah. Obviously, that, that's, that's great. As, you know, growing up, was that something that ever interested you? Certainly, space was of interest to me um, and, and engineering. But I think really, actually, I mentioned this at the conference that I was at last weekend. Uh, it was a bunch of students there. And I was saying to them, you know, I, I, feel, I feel that even though I'm maybe technically not a millennial, I, I feel very much akin to the millennial generation and, and some of the traits that, that they are known for. And one of those is that is the kind of need to feel that I'm making a contribution and, you know, not just working a job nine to five to make a salary and go home, but to do something that I want to do that's that's useful, that yeah. is making a difference, so to speak. And I think inherently things involved with space fit that bill. I think when we're talking about exploration and pushing the limits of where humans have been and what we can do, you know, that to me is is compelling and interesting and, and therefore worthwhile. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily that I knew I wanted to be doing space stuff when I was, say, 18, but... I think fairly soon I knew I wanted to do something that was different and that, you know, fit the bill. And then, you know, the downside is that after having done that, it, it's it's hard to kind of go back to some other average office job because, uh, yes. you know, the bar's been set high and there's a precedent. So Yeah, no, I guess I guess there would be. Um, can you, you talk can, about, because um, it sounds like you maybe had two different modes when you're doing that job. There's kind of the, you know, systems side where you're developing this program versus, you know, supporting a team real time in space. Was that... It, I imagine that would be a stressful um, position. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I wouldn't say it was, I mean, it was certainly a demanding position. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the bottom line is there's astronauts up there on orbit. And, you know, at one time uh, I got the chance to, uh, just to, to be clear, there's not damage on every mission. Sure. And so we were supporting every mission. We were there in case there was a need for us in the system. But, you know, it, it was not typical that there would be a damage site that needed an inspection and then maybe a spacewalk to, to make a fix. Right. Um, but towards the end of the shuttle program, one of the missions I was working, there was a significant damage site and they did an inspection. And after the astronauts would use the camera, which was mounted on the end of a boom, which was, which was held by the Canada arm. Mm -hmm. So we were working with uh, the folks, the colleagues at CSA and MDA and the other people, and they would, you know, move the camera around, take a picture, and then they would downlink that data and we would get that. And so part of my job was to uh, use a, a software, a custom software to analyze the size of the volume of the damage site, because that's really what would would um, influence how much heat could pass through the thermal protection system and mm -hmm. into the main part of the, ch the shuttle and therefore how much, you know, could it sustain reentry. So I got to make that calculation. And of course, I'm making the calculation in parallel as one of my colleagues making the exact same calculation, but right. independent from me until we get to the very bottom of the analysis and we have one number for volume and we compare them and they have to be within a certain range. And if they're within a certain range, then we agree that, okay, we're both in agreement. This is the number. Yeah. Then we pass that number to the engineers that designed the space shuttle structure and decide, they can decide if if that much heat coming in based on the volume of that side is going to be enough for it to be safe. Uh, sorry, you know, not enough that it, that it dangerous. So you know, that time we did that analysis, they made the calculation and they said, okay, yeah, the, the space shuttle is safe to come home. Mm -hmm. And so the astronauts gotten, you know, a couple of days later, they left the, the International Space Station, they climbed back in the shuttle and they they undocked and they and they they came home. Right. right. And as you can imagine when that shuttle's coming home, I'm watching that with a fair amount of trepidation going, yes. you know, yeah. I sure hope I did the math right <laughs> because I don't want this on my conscience. But but that said, like, you know, everything is checked and double checked and there's procedures mm -hmm. to follow the whole way along. And I'm involved in creating those procedures. So I have to understand, you know, all aspects of it, but you know, they do everything they can to remove the possibility as much as possible of human error. Yeah. Um, and so while there is stress and, you know, this is a responsible kind of position, it's, it's not the kind of thing where, you know, it, if I screw up, there should be protocols in place to protect that and to catch mm. that and to make sure that it, it doesn't affect things. Yeah. 
So in, in a sense, it, it wasn't super stressful. It was exciting and, and you know, interesting. And I, I love going to work every day when sure, you're going yeah. into Mission Control and, mm-hmm. and the stories I have are, you know, awesome. But, you know, it wasn't something that I would kind of be up all night worried about mm-hmm. because it was a job I was hard to do and I knew how to do it. And I knew I had the right team around me. So, yeah. And how big would that team be of, of people overseeing a, a mission? Um, so within our group, um, with the laser camera system group, uh, only there would have been, say, six or seven people probably supporting a mission because there was this, the, the mission's broken up into each day is broken up into three shifts, orbit one, orbit two, and a planning shift where the astronauts are asleep. Okay. And those three shifts are roughly uh, nine hours with you know it, the day being broken up into three eight-hour chunks with an hour overlap to hand over between the shifts. And just because you work in the orbit one shift doesn't mean that's nine to five. It might be 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. because right. the, depending on the orbits and the launch and all these things. Um, so there would be two positions working there, uh, LCS ops and LCS analysis, and there would be three of us roughly for each of those positions. So roughly six people per mission. But that was just for that technology and that was just on our team. Really, the, the team of support for a spatial mission is thousands of people mm-hmm. and and all working together in, in you know, different capacities to make sure that the job gets done safely. Absolutely. In your off time, did you find yourself near or around mission control or or can you completely shut off and and do something else um yeah i mean we we would go down for i would usually go down for you know a week or two for the mission depending on on exact uh, support requirements and i was going down fairly frequently you know maybe once every couple months and we would stay in in you know hotels that's with a suite so it was kind of like i was living there but you know living out of a hotel and if you weren't working yeah you were free to you know do whatever you wanted with your time and i did have some chance to you know spend some time in houston which it's not not my favorite city, um, <laughs> but also had some cha- time a uh, chance to spend some time in Austin, which is a really cool city, mm. and it's only about three and a half hours away, and it's you know re- really awesome. So I mean, yeah. I, I managed to go out there a couple times and 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 did that. Sure, and you know down to Galveston to the beach, Gulf of Mexico, and swim in the uh, the oh. warm the warm murky water, and sure, <laughs> I had to do it. Yeah. Uh, and how long overall did you did you uh, you know do any level of support for for NASA? And I guess to go down? it was about four years. Four years. Uh, Oh, wow. speaking yeah so it, and it was really the first four years of my career basically mm-hmm, i right. mean I, I you know i'd worked at this company several times for work terms like i said and yeah. in fact even one of them had been extended to a full year before i graduated so i had a fair amount of experience before that but yeah. um but yeah that was a good long time and it it, it, it coincided with the last um something like 15 space shuttle missions and then the space shuttle retired right i guess so uh, and, and sorry, that was always with the same company. Ne- yeah, Nepcon oh, is that you said? Neptech. Neptech, sorry. Yeah, okay. and they're still operational here in Ottawa. Still yeah. doing great, uh, cutting edge technologies, and still a world leader in in the sensors and the, the kind of cameras that they make for space. Interesting. Uh, yeah, no one can compete with them. Okay, uh, from there, uh, you you left Neptech. Yeah. And is that when you started your own? Uh... I stayed at Neptech for a few more years after the shuttle retired. So as the, oh, uh, okay. the shuttle program was winding down, um, Neptech was doing several other things. And one of the things that they were doing was working in the area of planetary robotics. So the Canadian Space Agency is always keen to allow, uh, facilitate Canadian industry supporting, to support international exploration missions and, and just the space industry at large. And one of the things that they thought would be a good way for Canada to contribute to future exploration missions was in robotics and specifically planetary robot surface robotics, because the experience we've got with the Canada arm and other kind of things in terms of orbital robotics meant that we have a lot of the right background to move on to something else like planetary robotics, which is more rovers. Sure. And so the, um, 
under the, the stimulus package that came out under Harper's government, they took $100 million or so and put that into a program called Exploration Surface Mobility, yep. which is really about developing the technology needed to support rover-type missions. So, okay. you know, drills and, and sensors that would be used for, for rovers and rovers. And so Neptech ended up winning a contract to develop one of the rovers uh, under this program awesome. and ended up developing actually several rovers in kind of a, an evolution, a family of rovers. Great. And I ended up transitioning from the space shuttle program to working on, on the rover team which okay. is pretty cool too. Yeah, it would be, yeah. Pretty lucky in, in kind of one you know, job and then moving on to the next. And that program actually culminated with the delivery of a rover prototype to NASA. And that rover was actually taken uh, to Hawaii and deployed at the top of a volcano where there's a good lunar analog site. Oh. And NASA was conducting a simulated lunar mission. And it's a mission that they're still hoping to complete. It hasn't flown yet, but but is expected to fly in the next few years. Um, it's a mission to the South Pole of the Moon, okay. where they're planning to prospect for water ice and other volatiles. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of water ice locked in the poles in the moon because there's permanently shadowed regions there that don't get sunlight. I see, yeah. And so water molecules that float through space and every once in a while hit the moon and get caught uh, don't sublimate because they're not heated up by the sunlight. Right. And we want to know how much water is there so we know how much we could use if we were to go there. Mm. Yes. So that's the point of the mission. And, and CSA provided the rover uh, for this this prototype, for this simulated mission. And I was one of the designers on this rover. And I went to to Hawaii to be one of the operations people during the mission simulation because I had experience working at, at JSC. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, very cool. Uh, and, and that was another two years then yeah, where you exactly. were working on that type of stuff. Yeah. I see. There was a bit of overlap. So for a while I was doing both the shuttle stuff and the rover stuff. Interesting. Um, and ultimately, I left Naptech in, I guess it was 2014, in the fall of 2014. Sure. And so at that time, we'd, we'd kind of, the rover program had had kind of come to a, a close. Um, you know, the money from the stimulus package had run out, and and it was kind of up in the air whether CSA would be pursuing more rover stuff. And it looks like they might be again now, which would be really exciting. Yeah. Um, certainly, I, I think as a Canadian, I think it's a great kind of program for Canada to pursue. Absolutely. Um, I think it'd be great to see a Canadian rover, um, you know, with a little drop of water on the moon saying, look, what Canada just found kind of thing. Yeah. So. That, that's still a possibility. Um, but at the time it was, you know, wasn't, it was a little somewhat doubtful and, and I was ready to try something new and ready for a change. Yep. And so it was, it was time to leave and, and to start another, another adventure. And, and what inspired you to actually start your own rather than join another? So in the summer of 2013, I'd actually taken a leave of absence from NAPTEC and I traveled over to France where I, I studied at the International Space University. Okay. So this is a graduate university headquartered in Strasbourg, France, and they run a nine-week uh, space studies program every year. Yep. It moves around the world to different locations. It's an interdisciplinary space program for graduates and people kind of from all ages and all disciplines in space. So I did that. And it was a great experience. I could go on and on about that. But when I came back, one of the one of the outcomes from that was that I was kind of reinvigorated, I guess, in the idea of, of kind of doing school. And, and, and you know, for a first three years after finishing, you know, the last thing I want to think about was school, Yeah. Um, especially after having done two degrees. But but then, you know, a bunch of years have gone by now and I've been back in school and kind of realized, you know, the nice positive energy you get from hanging out with other students and all that stuff. And I thought, you know, maybe I should do more school. So I ended up looking around for graduate programs um, like MBAs or things like that. And I ended up registering for a program at Carleton University, uh, which is offered through the Faculty of Applied Science called Technology Innovation Management, which is a little bit like an MBA, but it's much more focused on entrepreneurship and innovation, and new technologies. Mm -hmm. So I registered for that program and I started in January of 2014. Yeah. And as I was 
going through that program, I was learning basically how to start a company. Yeah. And so here I was kind of at the end of a chapter with NepTech and ready to start something new on my own and being trained how to run a company. Um, you know, the tagline for this degree program is a degree in one hand, a technology startup in the other. Right. And so yeah. here I'm thinking, well, you know, I might as well do this. Absolutely. I mean, this is what I'm here for. Right. Sure. So decided to found the company and did so with with a group of, of friends, colleagues that I had in my network and kind of made, they were my founding leadership team and, um, and founded the company. And then we were very successful in that we we were able to win a contract with the Canadian Space Agency within the first few months of our, of our inception, yeah. um, which is, you know, looking back, uh, really, that was a big accomplishment in the sense that we haven't won a contract. We've won several contracts since then, but nothing as big as that first one. So that's, sure, yeah, that's yeah. nice. Um, and so that really kind of got us going and gave us some some validation early on and kind of it's been all uh, uphill or downhill. I never know from, from there. I guess. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and sorry, sorry, that started in 2014? So he, I, I had I had left um, NEPTEC in, in the fall of 2014. Yeah. And a few months of kind of getting things up and running and we were formally incorporated um, March of 2015. Interesting. So we're just coming up on our three-year anniversary. And, and you are president and CEO of that yes. company. Yeah. How big is the team? We have six full-time, six part-time, and a few external advisors. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, you know, what's what's the goal? Is, is there a goal in mind or is it a mission in mind type thing? Uh, yeah. I think, And I think at the beginning, it, it was a bit of an evolution because at the beginning, we were something of an engineering service provider, a consultancy. Um, we had a, the founding leadership team had a fairly diverse background, but all coming from the space industry in Canada or abroad. And we felt that we could offer value to a variety of different companies or government um, in a variety of different capacities. So we kind of set up to do that. Yeah. But we weren't like a traditional startup in the sense that we didn't have one specific you know, business plan, one widget that we were designing that we were trying to, you know, disrupt a new market with. Right. Um, but as we've evolved and, and matured over the last few years and won more contracts and started to build up our own portfolio of IP, we are now coalescing around a core competency, a niche. And, and that's really in the area of robotics, operations, control, autonomy. So controlling robotic assets using AI techniques, um, oh, yeah. new techniques for, for teleoperation, yeah. uh, data analytics, machine learning. Things like that, yeah. uh, all rel- all really really to support space exploration. Although uh, conveniently, all with nice spinoff applications uh, or spinoff uses in terrestrial applications. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And what per- what percent of your business would you say uh, is those terrestrial applications? Uh, as of now, uh, we have zero revenue from sure. non-space applications. Okay, I okay. See. However, we do see that that is a, a, a potential end game in that if we are successful in in developing a technology for use in space. Mm-hmm. And we can find the right partners who are interested in, in adapting that technology. Uh, we were more than happy to do that. And we see that as something that, that is worth, worth targeting and being aware of and pursuing. Yeah. And so if we're designing something for a space application, we're very cognizant of, of what design choices would mean down the road for, for spinning it off or adapting it for other uses. Yeah, makes sense. You know, my, maybe you can help me. My father-in-law is very much all about, you know, robotics are the way of the future and, and um, you know, they're going to take... Uh, a lot of jobs that are, you know, jobs will be consolidated into these, these um, technologies. And he maintains teaching will be a thing of the past and teachers will be replaced by robots. What's your, what's your take on that? That's interesting. I actually, um, coincidentally, I was thinking just a couple of weeks ago about, about AI and its capacity and what it can do and what jobs will be replaced and when we won't need humans anymore for, for things. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, one of the very first things, one of the things we absolutely will, will always almost need humans for is teaching in my uh-huh. opinion. 
And and that's because I think <laughs> a at at different levels, I think it, it it would be challenging to have AI, you know, be be empathetic to, to small children's needs, sure, to, yeah. to humans with special needs, and mm-hmm. uh, and each of us, I think, has different learning styles and capacities. And I think you know what the jobs teachers do are, are incredible and difficult, mm-hmm. and and I think that would be very difficult to program. Now, right. I'm not saying we won't ever get there, but I think there's a whole slew of other yeah. jobs where it's actually much, much easier and almost almost straightforward to to have a robot or have a machine do right. the job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. You know, so I, I have, think it's, I have it's, time. It goes without saying. <laughs> Plenty in, of time, yeah. Yeah, it goes without saying in my mind that that within a some time frame, whether it's you know, 20 years or more or less that not a single human will, will drive any vehicle on right ever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, I mean, that just, it, when you, for us, it, that seems weird, but for our children, they will think it's preposterous that grandpa and grandma used to drive, yeah. you know, they used to sit and control this hunk of metal down the highway <laughs> at 120 kilometers an hour. Yeah, they don't yeah. think it's crazy. And frankly, it is crazy. It's like the wild west. It yeah. is. It yeah. is. Um, yeah. but you know, th- right now we think that what's crazy is getting in a, in a, in a car without a steering wheel. But once we are all doing that and that's the status quo, we're going to think it's obscene that we were allowed to drive. Yeah. And that truck driver I drove yeah. was allowed to drive. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> eh? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I, I want to give you a break because I'm asking you, we're asking you a barrage of questions. So, Keegan, you have a game? I have a game. It's it's predicated on something we didn't touch on that you played uh, Ultimate Frisbee. You're, you're yep. very accomplished. Can you tell us about your briefly about your career? Sure. Um, after playing rugby at, at Queens, I, I played uh, my last year that I was at Queens, I played Ultimate. Um, I, I got into that because I knew some people here in Ottawa that played and I thought it was an interesting sport. And and turns out that uh, physiologically, I was probably more suited to playing Ultimate than I was to playing rugby or football. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> not the not the largest human. And um, so I ended up playing at Queens uh, my last year and we were lucky. We won a uh, we had a great team. We won a national championship that year. Wow. Uh, I came back to Ottawa and started playing competitively with the men's touring team in Ottawa. It's called Phoenix, um, who's still still around today. And oh, yeah. played with them for a bunch of years. I think maybe five or six years um, mm-hmm. spread over a couple stints. Sure. Um, the best we finished in Canada was was second place. Disappointing finish. You always oh. rather, you'd rather <laughs> bronze than silver. Yeah. Um, the, the dirty gold bronze. But um, <laughs> and uh, and great experience. We we were able to represent Canada at at world club championships one year so went to Prague and, and played against teams from all over the world um wow. with some, some great friends of mine and uh and really it's an amazing sport and and it's a lot of fun to play and and Canada is a sorry Ottawa surprisingly is, is a real hub for for ultimate and it's got one of the largest uh uh, recreational leagues in the world. It's got a dedicated facility for Ultimate that's owned by the league. Yep. And the competitive teams, uh, the men's team Phoenix and the women's team Stella or Capitals are really top notch. And yeah. there's actually now, uh, for the last few years, I don't know, three or four, a professional team in Ottawa. And many that's of the right. players are, are guys I used to play with. So it's nice yeah, for me to cool. go out and, and see them playing. And I yeah. start pitching. I, I want to get out there and play right, again. Eh? But I, I got, got a lot in the go. So Yeah, I get that. Great. Awesome. Okay. Well, with that, I thought we'd we do some ultimate ultimate trivia. Oh, okay. That sound. Is it ultimate frisbee trivia or ultimate? It's, it just says ultimate trivia okay. here. I'm not looking forward to this. All <laughs> right. So we're gonna have Team Ottawa, represented by Amon, versus yep. Team Guest. You and your championing Team Guest. Okay. Would you like to go first or second? Second. Second. Excellent. Okay. Team Ottawa. I don't know. Who? Uh, who am I? I am. Uh, a woman ultimate frisbee player who's won five national championships and two world championships. Who am I? Christine Sinclair. No. She's a side job, I heard. That's pretty close. It's Gwen Ambler. <laughs> Gwen Ambler was the name. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm on. Okay. Zero, zero so far. 
he was getting nervous. I now. see a look of concern. Uh, well, well I, I didn't know that. So I'm, I was <laughs> thinking of friends of mine. I'm like, I know people that I feel like have done that, but I guess. There you go. All right. Uh, uh, Ewan, what is a point called in Ultimate? Um, wow, that's surprisingly tricky because I would call it a point, but I would also call it a score. Um, it's worth one. I, I don't know. I've never really, it's, it's not like a touchdown or anything. I, mm-hmm. I would call it a point or a score. A point. That's correct. Oh, it was wow. a trick question. Oh, see, okay. they say I don't give trick questions to the guests. Yeah, see, oh. the engineer wants to overanalyze those. <laughs> yes, I absolutely it. do. Okay, I'm on. Oh, no. Uh, who is the CEO and co-founder of Ultimate Peace? Ultimate Peace? Yeah, it's an organi- ultimate organization. Like an ultimate Frisbee organization. Uh, um, and don't make fun of it. Amanda Frisbee. No, my God. <laughs> David Barkin, Ultimate Peace, uh, is, uh, it uses Ultimate to uh, promote interfaith dialogue between Israel and Palestinian oh. children. Yeah, okay. I should have known you that monster. one. Yeah, I should have known that one. All right. Okay. Trump even knows that. Yeah, it's Come it. on. <laughs> one, nothing for Team Guest. Team Guest, here's your second question. What is the name of the professional Ottawa Ultimate Team? The Ottawa Outlaws. The Outlaws, that is correct. Very good. Mm-hmm. Two, nothing. Mm-hmm. Team Ottawa, just for a little bit of redemption, I guess. You cannot win. Okay. Do you want, do you want to guess the name? Do you want... I'll give you... I have a person. Do you want their name or their position? Uh, they give me a freebie here. If I, if I ask for their name, do I get context? Yes. Okay. <laughs> name and context. Tom Crawford. Uh, he's a, an ultimate player. What organization did he found? What? <laughs> oh, uh, I, uh, the Ottawa Outlaws. No, it's, the, it's USA Ultimate. Great. All right. It's an unfair game, you. It's not an unfair game. I'm giving you both <laughs> questions. I give you a trick question, even. All right. <laughs> uh, uh, finally, okay, here's one that neither of you, oh no, Amon won't know, but I bet Ewan knows. Uh, what is the position of cutter on an ultimate team? Um, well, the ultimate is a very fluid game, and so there's seven people on a field, and, mm-hmm. and all seven can kind of do everything. Sure. But generally speaking, you would have two to three handlers who are more likely around the disc and passing it back and forth and trying to work the disc upfield to cutters who are mm-hmm. the ones who are somewhat like wide receivers or, or mm-hmm. slot receivers in football who are kind of trying to get open and catch the disc and then, you know, move it upfield. But, you know, ah. th- there's not really, it's very fluid and, and you know, mm-hmm. you have to kind of take different roles at different times. Yes. Although they rarely would have put me as a handler, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> a comprehensive and correct answer. Uh, Very nice. Three, nothing for team guest. Can, can we end it? That's that is the end of <laughs> ultimate <laughs> trivia. Very nice job. Thanks. Thanks for that. Keegan, as always, uh, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Ewan, uh, you have now, I thought you had, uh, quite a bit of experience in theater but you don't because i've seen you in uh three musketeers uh because a friend of mine was also in that and you were excellent in it but you are not somebody who finds yourself acting a whole lot so tell me about sort of your your acting career as it is or or so i guess as you've heard already i i was more of an athlete um earlier in my life than than anything else and and i'd never been involved in theater whatsoever yeah uh, in the past but over the last several years i guess in the back of my mind i had this idea that maybe it was something that i would like to do or be good at it or want to want to pursue and 
I've I've stopped playing competitive sports the last couple of years. I had shoulder surgery last year and and just haven't been been competing like I usually have been and was looking for something to fill that void. And um, since I'd always thought about it, I thought, okay, maybe now's the time to to try. And I also was aware that Ottawa's home to a very long standing and, and you know impressive uh, community theater organization, the Ottawa Little Theater. Yes. And so one day I decided, well, I'm going to go and audition, even though I don't have a clue anything. The first thing about acting and. I did audition and I was not given a role. Um, that would have been a little crazy, but they, I guess, saw that I was, you know, um, had some energy and some spirit and, and was keen and that, you know, maybe I had some underlying talent. I don't know, but they, they offered me the, the director and the assistant director, associate director, um, uh, Jeff and, and Venetia offered me a chance to be an understudy. And, and then once the, the, the show was uh, on, once the run was going, I was going to be the crew chief backstage. Right. So I was happy to take that opportunity. It was, was great. And we were in a show a production called the murder room and it was a great production, very well received. And, and it really gave me a, a, a huge amount of lessons and exposure and, and um, a taste for theater. And so at the end of that, I thought, okay, well, that was great, but I still really haven't been, I haven't acted yet. I haven't been on stage and yeah. I've learned a heck of a lot about theater, but I've never actually done it yet. So I better audition again and see if I can actually, you know, do this. Yeah. So about a year later, I auditioned for another show, uh, Three Musketeers. And this time I was uh, able to, to be given a role. Um, in fact, I was given two small speaking roles and then I was in the, the ensemble. Um, it's as you can, as you saw, it was yes. a large cast, um, you know, a lot of fight scenes, a lot of stuff going on. So that was great. It was a really, really great cast and, and a lot of fun people to hang out with and, and really to learn from. I mean, many, many people that are involved in our little theater as even though it's an amateur theater, the it's very professional. And, and not only yeah. are there some professionals working there being paid, many of the people who are there working as volunteers are actually professionals just doing this because they don't have another show on the go. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a great way for me to learn. And, you know, where else could I have gone from never having acted before to being in a run where there's 450 people watching me every night? Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's not even something you, you dream of. So, so it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. And I, I do hope that um, I get the chance to, to be on stage again. So I haven't yet auditioned again just because got a lot going on, but sure. um, I think when the timing is right, I will be auditioning again and hoping that I get a chance to, you know, maybe the next objective is to play a more more lead role and see how that goes. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, see, so part of the reason I, I bring it up is that so far we've learned that you, um, starting in order, you're a former hitchhiker, but I'm not going to throw that on the side. Uh, you are an engineer, you're a president and CEO, you're a part-time actor, uh, you have all these things on the go and, and, and more, but you still find yourself as not being as accomplished as your siblings. Yeah. So this is drawing back to the beginning of this podcast where you have the two siblings, a brother and a sister. And it's insane because I find you very accomplished. But how much does a person have to do to feel like, you know, they're as accomplished as your siblings? So it's, first of all, what, what do your siblings do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of the underachiever here. So, <laughs> I, you know, but that's OK. I mean, you got to have an underachiever in any family, right? So that's this is insane. So that's me. But um, <laughs> Well, I guess I can start with my sister. She's she's the oldest, um, a little bit older than me. Um, my sister is the first lady of Iceland. So, oh, it, <laughs> yeah, uh, Eliza was um, always an overachiever, and and you know, uh, aced her way through through Bell High School and the Enriched Program in in four years, and moved out, off and went to U of T and and studied at Trinity and was head of college and got all these great part time jobs and went off to Oxford and was doing grad school there and. 
And <laughs> when she was there, she met her uh, husband-to-be, uh, Gudni, who um, subsequently finished his PhD, and they moved back to, to Iceland together and started a family, and he was teaching at the university. And then um, last year, the beginning of last year, there was the, the Panama paper scandal, and, and yes. the, the prime minister uh, was, was kind of ousted, and, and there was generally a cry for a change in government at the top in, in, in Iceland. And so, you know, Gudni, who was a, a historian and a, and a political commentarian and a, you know, a biographer of politicians, was continually being interviewed and talked to about the situation. And people started to say, you should run, you should run. And he said, no, that's not for me, not for me. He kept saying no. And finally, he sat down with my sister and they discussed it and decided that, yeah, maybe I should run. And he ran and he won. And so wow. for the last couple of years now, she's she's been first lady and mm. and he's president. And and that is um, pretty unbelievable. It is yeah. unbelievable. That's great. Yeah. So really proud of her. And, and they're doing great. And they have four children, okay. my three nephews and a niece. And it's mm-hmm. uh, great to visit them. Absolutely. And then my brother, my little brother, uh, who's my little brother, but is um, kind of dwarfs me. Um, yep. And, you know, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I I can dunk better than he can, but really he's better than basketball than I am. But anyway, (laughs) he uh, he finished at Queens as well and and went off to Toronto. And then um, he also had a stint like I did moving back home and living um, with my parents. But he took advantage of that time to write his first book, um, which was subsequently published. And now he's just finished his fourth and it will be out in August. (laughs) And in the meantime, the news uh, that he just went public last week. So I'm pleased to be able to say it. Um, is that his third novel, uh, his third book, his first novel, will be made into a, a, a movie by Netflix. Wow. Is that right? And um, it will be written and produced, so written and directed by Charlie Kaufman. Is that right? Yeah, who did you know, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless yep. Mind yep. and being John Malkovich, yep. Adaptation, all these great movies. And my brother Ian will be uh, a, a producer on that, so he'll get a producer credit, and he'll be working with Charlie on 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 that sh- on that production. Yeah, and that's yeah directly for Netflix, a, a feature film. So also you know extremely cool, yep. and um, you know. Ian might be at the Oscars in the next couple of years. And, you know, meanwhile, my sister Eliza will be at, you know, whatever international event. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll just be back here. You'll be in what? space, maybe. So, yeah, maybe. Yeah. maybe. We'll see. <laughs> That's wild. Uh, how do your uh, parents process all this? <laughs> um, well, I think they're pleased. Um, yeah. You know, and 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 maybe they're, uh, you know, I think they're, they're, I don't know if I'll say pleasantly surprised. I think they, they've always thought highly <laughs> of us and in and, and our abilities, but they've also never been the kind of people that were, you know, de- overly demanding. I think, yeah. you know, my parents would be happy if, if they knew that we were happy and healthy and yeah, that, yes, that we were living the life we wanted and that would be, that would be fine with them. So, Absolutely. you know, it doesn't really matter what our jobs are or anything else or achievements for them. It's just that we're, we're, we're following our, our hearts and that's enough for them. And so, you know, I think they're, they're delighted. Um, but you know, I think they would have been delighted anyway. Yeah. They're yeah. just, uh, pleased that we're all still here and doing all right. It, it's, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. I mean, it's unbelievable that all three kids grow like from growing up on a hobby farm to the way the three of you sort of made your own very distinct careers and lives mm-hmm. turned out to where you are. It, it's unbelievable. That's great. Well, I'll give a little bit of credit to um, my whole family, but maybe I'll do a particular shout out to my grandmother, uh, sure. Betty, Betty Brown, who uh, is a hundred, yep. uh, just turned a hundred a couple months ago. Oh, congrats to her. And, and grandma was uh, a nurse in the second world war mm-hmm. and was with the, the, first field hospitals following right behind the the Canadian troops all the way up through Italy. Um, and, you know, the experiences she had there and, and just the attitude she had about that whole thing has always been just 100% positive. She's just, her whole life has been for other people and, yeah. you know, never complains and always happy and was driving her hybrid until last year. Um, <laughs> so, you know, certainly a great role model for all of us and, and ah. someone to be, uh, take inspiration from. Absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. This, uh, this is going down as probably one of, if not my favorite episodes. This has just been fantastic. But with that, we have run up on all time. other guests. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, I really hated the first three where it was just the three of us. Um, with that, we've run up on time. So I'm going to give you a chance to promote anything you want to promote, uh, whether it's business, whether it's anything else you have going on. So you do your thing. Well, uh, I mean, I work for a company called Mission Control Space Services. I founded a company called Mission yes. Control Space <laughs> Services. So, you know, if there's anyone out there listening that, you know, really wants to buy some uh, autonomous rover software, well, they should they should give me a call. There it is. <laughs> um, I, I think that's that's a little bit unlikely, but that's OK. Um, <laughs> so maybe I, I can, in, in lieu of that, say, you know, you should go out and look for one of my brother's books because they're all amazing. Um, mm-hmm. So his, his latest is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, uh, yeah. which is a kind of a philosophical horror, a psychological thriller that's doing very well. So mm. check it out. And your brother's name again is Ian. Ian Reed, and it's I-A-I-N-R-E-I-D. Right. There it is. Uh, Rob, uh, I'm going to loop you into the conversation. You've been silent yeah, the whole yeah. time. Uh, yeah. Producer Rob, uh, do you want to talk about where people can find us? Of course, yeah. Uh, you can head to uh, my favorite of all, Twitter. We're at Ottawa Podcast on Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, you can just search for Ottawa. We'll come right up. Uh, I wanted to do a couple specific things for this episode. So I was looking in our analytics and I noticed a surprising number of listeners from Pocket Casts. So I wanted to say, I, I went and asked, and apparently there's a way to recommend episodes. If you listen on Pocket Casts and you feel like recommending an episode, feel free to do that. Um, I'm, I'm looking for you every week in the analytics. So uh, the other thing I wanted to do, because I've been ragging on Keegan for like possibly a year and a half, two Forever. years about uh, using the Ottawa Instagram account. Ah, yes. Which just has the username Ottawat. And so I will say, if anybody comments on our picture that I post every week, if you go follow Ottawat and leave a comment on the picture for this episode, I will make Keegan get Instagram and sign in and oh. make him post pictures. Oh, cool. wow. Yeah, we could do like a picture a week or something. Yeah. Great. I'm down. Just Keegan's life. That's that's what I really want to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the, the people want to see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Keegan, any uh, last words? Um, <laughs> it's my baby's six month birthday tomorrow or in two days. That's fun. And, uh, she's eating, eating solid food now. Congratulations. Make fun of that. You jerks. Uh, I make I've, fun of me. I've got nothing. <laughs> I can't make fun of her. Uh, with that, we'll end the podcast. You just have to say Ottawa. Ottawa.